0: You are listening to Odyssey, the podcast, history's other most awesome epic. Today's episode is titled "Aeolus and the Last Dragonians." So welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I'm choosing to title this episode, Aeolus and the Last Dragonians. Now, just a quick recap of where our story is as we dive into this episode. So about 15 days earlier, Odysseus and his 12 ships, 600 men, had set sail from the burning shores of Troy, searching for home. And things had gone south in a hurry. 72 of those crew members had been wiped out in a completely pointless and needless military venture on the island of Ismaris. Then there had been the rather ugly incident in the land of the Lotus Eaters, and the men, some of the men, almost gave up in their homecomings altogether at that island. Finally, they had blundered into the cave of a Cyclops, where another six of Odysseus' best, bravest men had lost their lives in a completely horrifying fashion. And that was just the good news, because following the land of the Cyclops, of course, the crew, the ship, Odysseus himself, had been well and thoroughly and goodly cursed by the Cyclops Polythemus. Now, as Odysseus and his men sailed away from the land of the Cyclops, they had no way of knowing whether the curse had been received. They'd seen it delivered, but they didn't know whether Poseidon was actually going to acknowledge the curse. The bad news for Odysseus is that Poseidon up there on Mount Olympus heard the curse and Homer informs us, the listeners, that Poseidon nodded his head. So that left the god of the sea with one of only two options, either send down some sort of a storm or a thunderbolt and wipe out Odysseus and his crew right now, or to go for the Cyclops' plan B curse, which would be a long, slow, painfully delicious, and incidentally wonderfully entertaining version of the curse. And, of course, because this is a great story, and because storytellers are paid by the hour, we know that Odysseus and his crew are not going to all instantly die right now, and I'm not going to instantly wrap up my project and say that's it, Odysseus never made at home. So strap yourselves in, folks. We have a long, deliciously miserable and delightfully entertaining cursed ship and crew to follow for episodes to come. So, Odysseus and his men, lost, having no idea where they were in the Mediterranean Sea, sailed for a few days. We have no idea how long Odysseus really doesn't report. And then off in the distance, well, they spotted possible hope. It, it, there, was, there was something floating off in the distance, and it, it looked like an island, but an island constructed entirely of bronze, and and the way it was perched there on top of the Mediterranean Sea was entirely improbable. Something that size in bronze should have sunk to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. So Odysseus and his men, intrigued and of course also desperately needing new provisions and also desperately needing new directions, rode towards that improbable shiny bronze structure in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, when they got closer, they realized that really all they were looking at was a spectacular island, which had wonderful walls and fortifications. And some artist at some stage in history had done some wonderful, wonderful, I don't know, siding of those walls with some bronze plates. And they were catching the sun. And that's what created the effect. But all in all, it was a very nice, normal looking island. The harbor, as they looked at it, looked calm, quiet, peaceful and tranquil. So Odysseus and his men rowed into that harbor. Now, of course, they were keeping their fingers half-crossed. Their last rowing into a harbour had not turned out so well, because that had been a harbour and a land governed by Cyclops giants, who did not practice Zeus's laws of Xenia. So Odysseus and his men breathed their first sigh of relief when they looked down to the shore and saw that the individuals walking around in that harbour comfortingly had two eyes and not one. Then Odysseus and his men were even more comforted when Odysseus hopped off of his boat and bravely announced that they were... Travelers, they were lost at sea, and they were suppliants, and they were wondering if the laws of Zeus Zeneus were practiced here in this island. Would they receive hospitality? And the response that they received from the harbor master was likely the most comforting words they had heard in some time. The, the harbor master simply turned to Odysseus and said, "Well, of course you'll receive hospitality. Are not the rules and the laws of the great god Zeus practiced on all islands in the Mediterranean?" So Odysseus and his twelve ships landed in the harbour. Now, at that point, of course, Xenia rules and customs required that Odysseus, who was obviously noble-born, receive a different level of accommodation, food, shelter, and clothing than would the members of his crew who were not noble-born. So, Odysseus was invited up to King Aeolus's palace. On the way up, he was, of course, informed that he had landed on the land of Aeolia, which was governed by the wonderful King Aeolus. His men uh, of a lesser class, well, they were treated with appropriate lesser class hospitality down on the docks and they were likely all put up inside of the taverns and had an absolutely spectacular time with the local guys of their own socioeconomic setting while Odysseus was up at the palace hobnobbing with the royalty. Well, of course, King Aeolus greeted Odysseus, asked him none of his business, asked him nothing about his name, and instead the servants provided Odysseus with a glorious bath, wonderful new robes, and a nice hot meal before Aeolus finally asked the now appropriate question, so who are you, traveler? And Odysseus, who now, of course, had every reason to trust King Aeolus, replied that I am Odysseus, I have recently come from Troy, I am seeking my homecoming. Ladies and gentlemen, the most amazing thing is, in spite of the fact that the war against Troy had only been over for a matter of 15 days, it turned out that the people of the land of Aeolus knew a fair bit about that war, and more comforting still, they appeared to be big supporters of the Greek cause in that war, and Aeolus was absolutely thoroughly delighted when he realized that now here as his host guest was, well, Odysseus, a guy he had certainly heard about from his exploits inside of the Trojan War. So, Aeolus invited Odysseus to stay and, in the evenings, entertain the entire royal family and all the retainers with stories of that Trojan War. And, and ladies and gentlemen, this was, well, Odysseus was in a seventh heaven here. Remember that Odysseus is our consummate storyteller. Athena, of course, calls him a bullshit specialist, but it's really a fine line between the two, as, well, those of you who have been listening to this podcast no doubt have realized So Odysseus had what every storyteller in the Bronze Age world or in the 21st century absolutely craves and adores, a captive audience with very, very deep pockets. And so Odysseus stayed on the island of Aeolus for not the three to five customary xenia days, but rather for a full month, weaving tall tales of Troy, some of them possibly even true. And of course, most of those tales would have focused on the mighty and heroic exploits of the great Odysseus himself. Well, of course, the day eventually came when Odysseus realized, you know, this is really great, but I, I do have a homecoming in mind. Uh, uh, there is Penelope, there is Telemachus, it has been 10 years, possibly dallying for a month on an island, telling tall tales isn't, isn't really my prime objective. So Odysseus spoke with Aeolus and said, I'm going to need to leave in the morning, and there's still that small problem of, you don't happen to know where Ithaca is, do you? Well, Aeolus, with a twinkle in his eye, said, I, I think I will be able to help you with your problems of homecoming, Odysseus, um, but let's deal with that in the morning. I, I have a rather interesting guest gift ready for you. So the next morning, Odysseus, Aeolus, hopped onto a chariot and headed down towards the harbour where Aeolus's men had fully reprovisioned and kitted out the twelve boats inside of Odysseus' fleet. They were sitting peacefully, patiently in the harbor. Odysseus's crew were in absolutely fine form, and Aeolus stopped the chariot in front of Odysseus's command boat. Now, behind Aeolus's chariot, as he headed down towards the shore, Aeolus had instructed a large cart to be driven by two huge oxen, and on the back of that cart was a massive leather bag. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this leather bag it looked as though it had been built out of the skin or the carcass of a flayed full-size oxen. It, it looked like a massive, giant leather balloon, stretched tight almost to the bursting point, then tied off at the top with a heavy silver cord. Aeolus hopped off of the chariot, walked back to the cart, and reaching out his long arms... It could barely grip onto this leather bag it was so huge and then Aeolus grabbing the bag and staggering turned to Odysseus and said, Direct me to the front hold of your own command ship, Odysseus. This is your guest gift. I want to put it into some place safe before you depart. Well, Odysseus, watching Aeolus struggle, offered to help, but Aeolus, with a quiet little twinkle in his eye, said, no, I think I can manage, and he, he carefully brought this massively large leather bag up into the deck of Odysseus's ship, and then the two of them did their best to stuff it below the hold in the front part of that deck. Well, the sailors, of course, all watched on in curiosity. This was this was a guest gift. They knew that the guest gift would be coming. That was part of the Zinnia ritual. But but this was a wealthy kingdom, and, th- and this bag was absolutely spectacular. My God, the amount of treasure that could have been in that bag was mind-boggling, and the fact that Aeolius could even hold it was, well, something else entirely. Well, once the bag had been carefully stashed, Aeolius turned to Odysseus with a twinkle in his eye and said, "So, So do you want to know what your gift is, Odysseus? Now, of course, Odysseus desperately wanted to know, but the rules of Zinnia were fairly clear. Back in the Bronze Age, much like today, ladies and gentlemen, if somebody gives you a nicely wrapped-up present when you're about to leave their place, it's considered a little bit tacky or gauche to cross-examine them on the contents of the gift. In other words, a gift is freely given and therefore should be received graciously and gratefully, even if it turns out to be something which you then quietly and discreetly, well, re-gift or return to the store sometime later. So so Odysseus wasn't asking about this amazing-looking bag of treasure stashed into his deck, but no doubt Odysseus was curious about it. Well, Aeolus broke Odysseus's curiosity. He said, Odysseus, no doubt you'd like to know what's inside of that bag, and Odysseus, smiling, said, well, I am not really allowed to ask, but if you tell me, then I, I-, I won't have to stop the ship and open the bag the minute we're out of your harbor, good king. So Odysseus listened as Aeolus quietly and under his breath explained. Odysseus, Aeolus explained, I am not a god. But I am clearly favored by the gods. And the god Zeus has given me a unique and particular gift, Odysseus. The god Zeus has gifted me with control and power over all of the winds in the high seas. Odysseus, I am the master of the east wind, the west wind, the north wind, the south wind. And Odysseus, I can control the direction, the tempo, the speed of all of those winds. Now, your home, your beloved Ithaca, your wife Penelope, your son Telemachus, which you have spoken about so much. They are all due west of here, Odysseus. So what I have done is I have placed into that large leather bag stowed below the deck of your ship all the winds of the Mediterranean, save for the west wind. So Odysseus, when you leave the harbour, simply pull in your oars, set the great sail, sit back, and enjoy the ride. The winds trapped in that bag will keep Poseidon from giving you any troubles whatsoever. And the breeze still out there in the Mediterranean, well, I have it precisely calibrated. Odysseus, you will be safely in Ithaca's harbor in 10 days without having to do a thing. You don't even have to steer. That, Odysseus, is my gift to you. A homecoming. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we can only... We can only speculate. Odysseus had already been pretty excited about that big leather bag, assuming that, well, King Aeolus had just doubled his treasure and his hall of gifts from Troy in one fell gift. But this was something far greater than all of Troy's treasure combined. This is what Odysseus and every man on his crew had been dreaming about for 10 long, painful, difficult, ugly years. Homecoming. And this, of course particularly given the Cyclops' curse. This was their meal ticket home. Well, Odysseus smiled, he beamed, he he thanked Aeolus as profusely as he could, and Aeolus simply turned to Odysseus and said, You need to keep that bag safe. If it is opened before your ships have anchored in the harbor of Ithaca, very, very bad things will happen when those winds escape that bag. Now, good luck and gods be with you, Odysseus. And with that, Aeolius returned to his palace. Well, Odysseus nodded to his fleet and they rowed out of the Aeolian harbour onto the high seas of the Mediterranean. Then Odysseus gathered the fleet around. He announced from the top deck, Boys, Aeolus has given me the directions. We are going home. Ithaca is only a mere ten days away. Pull in your oars. Set the great sails. Boys, we're going home. And once the cheering died down, and that took some time, the men followed Odysseus's command, and indeed, Aeolus's gift was precisely what he had promised. When the great sails on those twelve boats were raised, a stiff but precisely calibrated westerly wind picked up, filled the sails, and the boats verily sped, across an otherwise calm, peaceful, and pleasant Mediterranean Sea. And then, ladies and gentlemen, Odysseus, our Odysseus, made the greatest mistake of his entire life. For some reason, for some reason which we don't know, because it's not documented and Odysseus never explains it himself, Odysseus decided in his wisdom to not inform any members of his crew on the exact contents of that huge leather bag stowed below deck. In fact, instead of informing the crew that, hey boys, Aeolus has just given us a large leather bag of wind. What say we do our very best to protect it on the voyage home? Odysseus actually went deliberately out of his way to not answer the man's question about that huge leather bag below deck. And the men, of course, who had seen Aeolus struggling with that big leather bag, it, it, it had piqued to their curiosity, and of course, as soon as they were out in the harbor and, and away from the, the guy who had given the gift, they, of course, had all shouted out, so what's in the bag, captain? Are, are, are you a rich man? Are, are we rich men, captain? Just how much treasure is in that bag, captain? And, and, and of course, Odysseus at that point could have easily said, boys, there's treasure in that bag, but let me explain precisely what sort of treasure it is. But, but instead, Odysseus shut up all conversation and all debate, on the bag he wouldn't talk about it and he made it very very clear to the men that he didn't want them talking about it either and so as a consequence ladies and gentlemen as those 12 boats sped across the mediterranean sea towards home well the men on Odysseus's boats had no choice but to fill the information vacuum which Odysseus had created with their own forms of idle speculation they began to ask questions. They began to, to to say to each other, well, clearly the bag must contain treasure. And, and when Odysseus, of course, didn't disabuse him of that notion, they just magnified and amplified the amount of treasure contained in that bag and you really can't blame them. Ladies and gentlemen, these men, all of these men in the crew had, well, they were familiar with the practice of zania and even the most humble of the men in that crew would have either given or received guest gifts at some stage in their life, and guest gifts, of course, were always tangible things of some sort, so in a way, some form of treasure, if you were poor, it might just be a tiny, tiny, tiny little copper coin, but the men assumed the logical thing. The guest gift contained treasure. Not one of those men ever in the entire history of their lives had ever heard of a guest gift being a large, magical, GPS-guided bag of wind. And, of course, I I really can't help but digress a little bit moment here, ladies and gentlemen, and, and wonder about the, well, the delicious and deliberate or accidental irony of Homer, our storyteller, choosing to gift Odysseus the greatest storyteller teller of lies, con artist, BS expert with, well, the most appropriate of all gifts in the world. A huge bag of wind. So the boat sped across the Mediterranean Sea. And Odysseus then compounded the problem of not telling the men about the bag of wind. For some reason, again only known to Odysseus, Odysseus decided to actually engage in a very elaborate charade with his crew. So instead of just sitting back and enjoying the magically propelled, magically GPS-guided ride, Odysseus instead sat up on the deck of his ship, took hold of the ropes controlling the steering and the mainsail, and feigned a nine-day and nine-long-night pantomime of deliberately and carefully guiding his ship across the Mediterranean seas towards home. And he called to the boats behind, and he said, boys, just follow my directions and lead. I know where we're going. I, boys, can get us home. And so in spite of the fact that Odysseus could have gone below deck and had a nine-day nap, and they could have broken off all of the oars and the rudder completely, and those boats still would have ended up inside of the Ithacan harbor, Odysseus pretended that he was actually deliberately engaged in a very elaborate, detailed, time-consuming, and Odysseus is the only guy that can do this sort of navigational exercise. So for 9 days and 9 nights straight, Odysseus sat there pantomiming steering the fleet home. So why did he do it? We got to ask the question. I mean, Odysseus doesn't explain it, but why on earth would you do this sort of thing? And and I think there's really only two possible explanations and they're both of course grounded inside of Odysseus's personality. So I think explanation number 1 for this is that well, Odysseus the consummate liar the consummate BS specialist, the consummate con man, the the creator of history's ultimate con, the Trojan horse, just simply couldn't resist when he knew he was going home, adding one more glorious and amazing and wonderful con job to his list of accomplishments. So what he was doing was setting out to pretend in front of his men that he himself, the mighty, wonderful, great, brilliant Odysseus, was in charge and personally responsible for guiding the fleet home. What better way to add to his kleos and glory resume than to be the man who finally got his fleet home? And so Odysseus was pretending to guide the ship's. And all he was thinking, likely, of course, is that once he actually had the entire twelve boats into the harbour, and once his crew had departed for their wives, their family, their loved ones, their forests, their fields, their farms, well then Odysseus would just quietly go down to that hold, slowly and subtly, with nobody watching, release the winds from Aeolus's bag, and nobody would be the wiser. And there is, of course, well, I suppose, one other possible explanation. And that explanation is really absolutely no more flattering to Odysseus. But the other possible explanation is that Odysseus simply, for whatever reason, did not trust the men and his crew. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have lots of evidence of this sort of thing, that Odysseus is the one-man show, the solitary hero. Uh, there are many epithets about Odysseus which have come down through us, through the Iliad and the Odyssey and other works. But among the epithets that come down to us about Odysseus, we never hear things like... Odysseus, the man who trusted all other men. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, the evidence suggests the contrary. Odysseus has always seen himself and will always be a one-man show. So consequently, when he realized that he had this remarkable way of getting home, this, this ultimate gift, this bag of wind which promised homecomings, Odysseus, instead of thinking, you know, if I tell my men about this bag, that means that there will be 601 of us desperately trying to protect that bag, because my men, all of my men, want a homecoming too. Instead, Odysseus did not think of, well, how other men might think. Instead, he thought, I have a bag of wind. No other man is capable of controlling this very delicate and sensitive situation. I will control the information. I will control the knowledge. I will control the data. And folks, we've all met people like this in our personal lives, in our professional lives, sometimes even in our private lives. The individuals who are so thoroughly convinced that they are more brilliant than all other men, whether they truly are or not, that they do not like to share even a modicum of minimum information with the people working on their team. So possibly the idea of trusting countrymen with something as simple as, boys, it's a magical bag of wind, let's all try to protect it, was a trust bridge too far for our Polutropus Odysseus. But whatever the case, ladies and gentlemen, the inevitable inevitably happened. On the tenth day, after Odysseus had been sitting on the decks, pantomiming steering the fleet home for nine days and nine nights without sleep, Odysseus eventually collapsed into sleep. It turns out, folks, that even epic heroes can't quite make it to the 10-day mark. And when Odysseus fell sound asleep on the deck, the crew began to talk. By now, ladies and gentlemen, they were so close to the shores of Ithaca that Homer reports that the men on Odysseus's boats could see Ithacan people off in the distance and smell the cook fires of home. And if you have ever been away from home for a very long amount of time, we all know, ladies and gentlemen, that home, homecoming, not only has a look and a color to it, but it also definitely has a smell and a taste. And, and and as the men sitting in those decks after 10 years away looked towards Ithaca, well, you can only imagine the thoughts that filled their hearts. For 10 years, they had been afraid to really even think too much about home, except in a vague sort of abstract way, because the possibilities of surviving the bloody plains of Troy weren't high. And then there had been that nasty 15 days on sea when everything had gone wrong. But now, ladies and gentlemen, with, with the Ithacan harbour within visual range, well, the men on Odysseus' crew began to think about their life after the Trojan War. And of course, they were initially happy, but it didn't take very long for that happiness to morph into something much more bittersweet and then ultimately very bitter indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, these men had been away from their wives, from their parents, from their children, from their businesses, from their fields, from their farms, for 10 long years on a mission which was supposed to have taken them away for maybe two to three weeks at most. And even in the 21st century, imagine the horrifying things that can happen to a marriage, to a family, to a business, if a member of that marriage, that family, or that business is away for 10 long years. And this, folks, was the Bronze Age, where wild cards of health, death, and economic disaster were even more wild. So the men, as they stood there on the deck, thinking about homecoming, suddenly had to take stock of what the last ten years of that Trojan War had meant to them. What it had been all about. I mean, now, as they stepped ashore, as they walked back up to their families, their fields, and their farms aside from being the conquering heroes of Troy, what did they actually have to show for those 10 years? What were they bringing back home? Now, of course, it was, we know, some Trojan treasure in the ships, but clearly not nearly enough Trojan treasure to distract the men on Odysseus's fleet from thinking about that huge, absolutely staggering bag of Aeolian gold which Odysseus had been recently gifted. And the minute the men, of course, started to think about that massive bag of treasure below deck, of course, the wheels fell off and everything went south in a hurry. Because the men began to talk about that treasure. And I I think Homer actually does such a wonderful job of explaining it that I'll just give you the little piece of dialogue which Homer shares. Our captain, our captain makes friends and he is honored wherever he goes. Yes. Yes and he gained great wealth as his share of the plunder when Troy fell. But we, we who helped him for so many years, well, we're returning with empty hands. And now, in addition, well, King Aeolus has given him this remarkable gift. What is it? Well, let's find out. You know, we should open that bag and see how much gold and silver there is inside of it. And, ladies and gentlemen, Homer goes on with the following account of the disaster that followed. And the more that the men talked, the more this opinion, we should open the bag, prevailed. And so they opened the bag, and the wind rushed out of it, howling, and a hurricane seized them, and blew them, terrified, into the vast open sea, and far, far away from their home. Now, they had been so painfully, so agonizingly close, and then this. And I I can't help but wonder if, as the men of Ithaca were rowing into that harbor, or I should really say blowing into that harbor, and thinking about homecoming, was there not a parallel scene possibly happening up high in the battlements of Ithaca's palace? Is there a possibility that on that particular day, as those 12 boats, those 12 familiar boats, got oh so close to the Ithacan harbor, was maybe Penelope, Odysseus's wife not standing up there in the battlements as she likely did every day wondering when wondering if her husband was ever going to come home and on that day was maybe she accompanied by her 10-year-old son Telemachus and when they saw the 12 boats the familiar 12 boats did Penelope even for a moment dare to hope dare to believe dare to think that might be my Odysseus that might be my husband's fleet before suddenly the Ithacan skies had exploded into a hurricane like nobody had seen before. And when that hurricane, when that storm had ended, well, those 12 boats, maybe they had only been a mirage in Penelope's mind. Well, they had vanished, and the seas were quiet again. Well, we'll never really know what happened, but all I can tell you is if I were a screenwriter creating a movie version of this play, I would certainly include a scene with Penelope standing on the battlements, seeing her husband's fleet oh so close to coming into the harbour, before, of course, a storm blew it away. Well, when the storm finally did subside, Odysseus and his crew took stock. And remarkably, the winds, I suppose, doing sort of a a complete reverse-vector course from the one that Aeolus had steered them on, the winds blew them precisely back to their starting point. All twelve boats were sitting quietly in a tranquil bay outside of the land of King Aeolus. Well, Odysseus confesses at that time that he was so down, so deep in despair, that he briefly considered suicide, he tells it to us this way, When I woke up and realized what had happened, I didn't know whether to jump overboard and drown, or grit my teeth and endure this disaster in silence. What's curious, folks, is that Odysseus didn't say, When I woke up, I reconsidered the wisdom of my plan of keeping information from my crew. Nothing like that. So instead, Odysseus rowed his boat into Aeolus's harbor, walked on his own up to the door of the palace, and when Aeolus arrived, looking shocked at Odysseus and asking the basic question, What are you doing back here, Odysseus? I did my best to help you. Odysseus responded with a less than complete answer. Well, I was betrayed by my comrades. And then for a very long moment, neither of the two men spoke as that completely implausible and, well, inaccurate explanation or excuse hung painfully in the air. And then Aeolus broke the silence. Looking into Odysseus's eyes and glaring, Aeolus summed up the situation. Leave this place, Odysseus. You, most contemptible of all men. I am not helping anyone who is so clearly hated by the gods. And so, ladies and gentlemen, Odysseus had no choice but to make that long, quiet, solitary rock out from the harbour and back to the waiting fleet. Five hundred and twenty-two Ithacan men, his comrades, looked out to him hopefully, but Odysseus was not carrying a replacement bag of wind. So they sailed away from the land of Aeolus, and there was no wind this time. Just dead, calm seas. They had to row on unfamiliar waters, lost, cursed, and still searching for some sort of a homecoming. Well, 11 days later, they finally saw some land and realizing that they had absolutely no options but to get there they they rowed their boats towards the shores of that land and the land of course was not very hospitable or promising looking unlike Aeolus's clearly civilized land this was a a shoreline of huge towering gray rock cliffs the the cliffs started up high and then plunged almost vertically into the Mediterranean Sea and, and huge powerful Mediterranean waves were crashing against the shores. But there was a unique feature and it offered some sort of promise of hope hospitality or directions home and that was that somehow into those towering gray rock cliffs something had carved a channel deep, deep, deep into those high rock cliffs, and the channel was narrow. The channel was only so narrow that a boat wanting to go down that channel would have to pull down its great sail and pull its oars into about half length, but if you were to follow that long, straight channel, you could see, even from the Mediterranean, that the channel eventually opened up into a large, calm, and tranquil harbor the place was absolutely spectacular looking. As, as Odysseus and his men looked from the outside, they realized that this harbor, either God-made, man-made, or made, I suppose, through the forces of geology and nature, was the most perfect and safe harbor that a ship could ever possibly sail into. Once you got into that harbor, the round, flat harbor was surrounded on all sides by high, towering cliffs, which meant that buffeting winds or raging storms out in the Mediterranean would be completely ineffective. Any boat that made it into that harbor would definitionally be safe. So if you were a resident of that land, because around the top of the cliffs of the harbor, Odysseus and his men could clearly see huge stone homes and palaces. Well, if you were a resident of that land, then after a long day at sea, buffeted by the winds of the Mediterranean, there would have been nothing more comforting, nothing more pleasing, nothing more assuring of safety than to row down that long, high stone wall protected channel into that huge harbor where the winds of the Mediterranean would be absolutely powerless to do anything. To hurt you or your ship. But there was a downside to this, because as Odysseus and his men sat looking at that long, narrow channel leading into that spectacular, calm harbor, they weren't looking at it as residents of that community. They were looking at it as strangers visiting a strange land. And ladies and gentlemen, from Odysseus's perspective, in the perspective of, well, any modern military commander looking at that particular harbor, the harbour screamed out two words, death and trap. Ladies and gentlemen, this was the most clear-cut death trap that Odysseus and his men had ever seen. And here's the reason why. Any ship that made it into that harbour would find itself surrounded by high stone cliffs on all sides except where the narrow entrance of the harbour opened. And ladies and gentlemen, military strategy 101 is pretty clear that in any military campaign, occupying the high ground is a much smarter thing to do than being stuck down in the low ground. So if you were a ship and you pulled into that harbor and it turned out that the residents of that particular land were not friendly, well then from their high cliffs, they could they could call down any sort of enemy fire that they wanted on you. In the bronze age it might have been stones or it might have been arrows and later in history it could have been crossbow bolts and in the 21st century it might have been mortar rounds. But whatever the case, if you were down there in the middle of that harbor, you were sitting duck, and returning fire upwards is never nearly as easy or as effective as, well, receiving fire downwards. So the harbor was a death trap, and then, of course, if you had to get out of that harbor in a hurry because it turned out that the natives really did want to get you, well, then you were in real, real trouble because the only way out of the harbour was through that narrow entrance. And, and really, I want you to visualise now a, a, a bottle, a, a large round bottle with then a long narrow neck, sort of like a wine bottle, and any ships or group of ships trying to leave that harbour would have to proceed through that long narrow neck. And of course, the minute that something negative or terrible happened in the neck of that bottle... It would serve like a cork, and any ships left inside the harbor would have no possible way of escape. So, in short, Odysseus, sitting on his command ship, viewing this harbor, recognized right away that whatever wind or whatever force had guided them to this particular place, they should really stay very well clear of it. And Odysseus, quite prudently then, set his anchor outside the channel on the Mediterranean side and refused to enter the harbor. But then the other eleven boats, for some reason which is never explained to us because Odysseus doesn't explain it, those eleven other boats, all guided we presume by battle-hardened veterans of the Trojan War and, and guys who knew their way around a ship, those eleven other boats lowered their sails, pulled their oars into half-length, and rowed into the heart of that harbour and set their anchors. Only Odysseus's boat stayed offshore. Well, as Odysseus sat outside in the Mediterranean end, he moored his ship, put up an anchor, and then his spidey senses tingling that something was wrong in this island, instead of hopping off to investigate himself, Odysseus sent three of his crew off in an investigation mission. Find out who lives here, he said. Find out if they practice the rules of Xineas Zeus. Find out if we can get food, shelter, and most importantly, some sort of directions, home. So the three men headed off overland, hiking. They found a way to Through a path get up to the top of those tall cliffs and then they walked inland and found once they got to the top of the cliffs around the harbor there was actually a very comfortable serviceable and modern road. They followed that road for a while till it took them to a spring and that's where they encountered the first of the residents of this particular strange land. She was a young girl Well, the men approached from a distance. They called to her. They didn't frighten her, and then they very deferentially explained that they were suppliants. They were lost at sea, and they were hoping for some hospitality. Where are we, they asked. Well, the young girl replied that they had landed on the land of Lastragonia, and that her father was the king of the Lastragonians. Then she provided directions you will find yourself at a large palace. It is the largest building over on that side of the harbour. That is my father the king's home. Ask for hospitality there. So the three men proceeded, and fifteen minutes or so later they made it to the gate of that large palace. Well, the palace was huge, it was imposing, and the front door was massive, and the men, of course, were more than a little bit intimidated by the size of that door. But they rehearsed their request for Zinnia's speeches and then gamely knocked on the door and waited for the door to open. And when it did open, the men couldn't help but stepping back a little wee bit in shock. Because though the woman who opened the door smiled at them and beamed in incredibly pleasant fashion, there was no escaping the fact that that woman was, well, a giant. And and I don't mean a particularly large lady, I mean, a giant. She was at least twice the size of any man or woman that Odysseus and his crew would have ever seen. But she did have that smile on her face, so the men made the customary greeting. Hello, they said, we are suppliants, we are lost at sea, we are seeking for shelter, possibly a bath, a meal, and, 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 and a place to put our heads for the night. Are the laws of Xenia Zeus practiced here? Well, the woman smiled, said, come on in, sailors. Um, I, I'm I'm merely the, 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 the woman of the house, and uh, my husband, the king of the Last Dragonians, he is the one who makes decisions on, well, issues of hospitality. Now, he's out of the palace at the moment, but I will have him summoned. He'll be here in a few moments. Uh, so in the meantime, sit down, make yourselves comfortable. I'm sure that he will be really happy to see you. We do not get an awful lot of guests on our island, and it has been such a very long time since we have had sailors for dinner. Now, ladies and gentlemen, as that particular final part of her greeting hung in the air, Odysseus's three men, either hopeless optimists or very, very clumsy linguists, chose to sit and stay and wait for the husband. And he returned some moments later, opened the door, beamed wonderfully at his wife, smiled and said, wonderful, dear, sailors for dinner, and proceeded to grab one of Odysseus's men and eat him raw. Well, the other two sailors, of course, leapt up and in a panic, now reeling that sailors for dinner had multiple meetings, even inside of ancient Greek. Well, the sailors went screaming and running down towards the boats in that harbor. And at the top of their lungs, they desperately tried to warn the crew that were now sitting in that boat, wondering whether hospitality was practiced in this island. Unfortunately, what they said, well, it led to some confusion. They're having us for dinner! They're having us for dinner! The two men screamed, and of course that led to some of the men down in the harbour putting down their weapons and heading towards shore going, wonderful, Zinnia, and by the time that that linguistic confusion had been cleared up, it was too late. Ladies and gentlemen, the entire population of the land of Lastregonia stepped out of their homes and walked towards the high towering cliffs surrounding that harbour, and ladies and gentlemen, the entire population of Lastrugonia were giants. Homer tells us that there were a thousand of them, and that might be a little bit of epic exaggeration. Let's just say that there were more than sufficient giants to ring the harbour, and those giants were more than tactically situated to do an awful lot of damage to Odysseus's eleven sitting duck boats down there in the harbour. Within moments, as the men in the harbour desperately tried to pull out their oars and row towards that narrow bottle-like entrance, The last Dragonian giants began to rain down a heavy volley of boulders onto those boats. And the boulders, huge and coming from such height, crashed into the boats. Soon half of the boats were capsized and the men in the harbor were swimming and drowning. One of the boats, two of the boats, desperately vied to make it to the entrance to the narrow channel to escape the harbor. And of course, in their panic, they managed to break their oars and then founder one of those boats right in the harbor's entrance. Now there was no way out of the trap. And once the Lastragonians realized that all those sailors, those 11 boats, were going absolutely nowhere, the Lastragonians took a moment's pause, quietly walked back to their homes, and returned with long, lethal, triple-barbed spear-fishing spears. And then the Lastragonians, standing there with their spear-fishing spears, proceeded to quietly and calmly spearfish 464 Ithacan men, as they swam there, desperately trying to escape inside of the Lastragonian harbor. Ladies and gentlemen, the men of Odysseus's crew were stocked up on the shore like so many salmon, and the Lastragonians, of course, were going to be having sailors for dinner for weeks to come. While offshore on the Mediterranean side of the channel, Odysseus from his vantage point witnessed the entire grisly bloody bloodbath of a spectacle and was of course absolutely incapable or powerless of doing anything to save his men. So they sat there stunned watching in horrified silence until the Last Argonians finished spearing the last of the crew. And then Odysseus and his remaining crew members bent under their oars, rowed out away from the Last Argonians, back onto the relative safety of Poseidon's wine-dark sea. Odysseus tells us that they paused once they were offshore and took a moment to mourn the lives of their men and to exhale that they were still alive. And then that one ship, that one small crew, sailed out, lost, cursed, and searching for home. And that, ladies and gentlemen, well, that concludes this particularly grisly and unfortunate episode of the podcast. Now, when I was back in university doing my English literature degree, one of the courses that I took, and I actually found really kind of fascinating, was something called uh, The Structure of Stories. And, and, And what we did inside of that course is we looked at some of humanity's most famous and wonderful stories, things like the Iliad, the Odyssey, uh, Beowulf, Gilgamesh, and then right up to the 21st century. We looked at all of these stories and what we were trying to do in that course was engage in a version of literary criticism which attempts to look at the plots of stories and see commonality inside of the elements of those plots. In other words, do an awful lot of our stories, particularly our big epic stories, ancient and modern, follow a similar structure or plot line. And when I got into this stuff, I really got fascinated by it because it, turned out that when I started to look at these stories, I, I began to see recurring themes, recurring plot devices, ways that stories like Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, Harry Potter, and the Odyssey, and Huckleberry Finn, and The Wizard of Oz, all seem to follow an awful lot of similar patterns. And, and I got a great delight and an awful lot of fun in doing this. So what I want to do in the post-story commentary is talk about the pattern of story which literary critics refer to as the quest story. So, here goes. The basic core recipe for a quest story. The first thing, of course, you need to have is you need to have some sort of a hero with a mythic origin, some sort of magical background. There has to be something special about this person so that when we get into the story, we know that they are not like other men. Now, when you get into later 21st century quest stories, the mythic origin thing sort of fades off a little bit. We have more egalitarian heroes in the 21st century, and everybody in a quest during the 21st century, regardless of whether they're heroic or whether they have deific blood in them, gets their 15 minutes of questing fame. But most quest stories start with a hero of some sort, and then immediately they move on to something called the call. Now, the call is interesting, and essentially the call is put into simple terms. If you're going to have a quest, then you have to move a hero from point A to point B. Otherwise, you really don't have an awful lot of action inside of your quest story. So the call is the motivational force which moves that hero from point A to point B. So think about Odysseus's call. Odysseus is, as our story opens, at point A, the beaches of Troy. And Odysseus, our hero of his quest story is attempting to make it to point B. Point B, of course, is Ithaca, where his kingdom, his wife, and his child await. So the basic structure of the story is, let's get our hero, Odysseus, from point A to point B. Now in the quest story, there has to be some impetus, some timetable, some motivation for why the hero needs to get there in a hurry, and we already had that very well established way back in the earlier episode when we talked about what's going back in Ithaca. Odysseus needs to get home soon. The kingdom is getting into economic trouble, and Telemachus desperately, desperately, desperately needs a dad. Oh, and Penelope, well, she might like to see her husband again after 10 years. The next ingredient we need inside of a quest story, of course, is a cast of characters. Now, inside of the cast of characters, the Odyssey obviously has 600 of them, and I'm going to get on in a minute to how quest story uses a cast of 600 characters when it's telling a story, but first I want to look at a couple of the other ways that the cast of character ingredient is used in other stories, in other quest stories. One that you see fairly frequently in the stories, and you'll recognize right away, is a quest story where the hero is accompanied on his quest by the faithful companion or loyal sidekick, if you will. And the purpose of the faithful companion or loyal sidekick is to essentially follow the hero around and act as a mirror or as a foil which demonstrates just how absolutely stunning and brilliant and clever and cunning the hero is compared to even his traveling companion. And the rule number one for the loyal companion slash sidekick is that you are never, ever, ever allowed to upstage the lead character. The quest story cannot have two characters competing for the lead and for the spotlight. Now, if you wanted some modern examples of this, then think about Ron Weasley, the loyal sidekick inside of Harry Potter's world. Or think about Sam Gange, the loyal sidekick that accompanies Frodo Baggins on his quest. Or even think about Han Solo, who, though he's dashing and handsome and oh-so-cool, is actually the supporting cast member inside of Luke Skywalker's quest. All three of these supporting cast members are loyal sidekicks, they're hard-working, and, well, they're all definitely committed to the cause, but they are certainly not the hero of the quest. Oh, and I should just mention in passing, the hero is always a boy. The role of females inside of quest stories up until the 20th century is pretty clear. They stay at home, they tend home and hearth, they keep the home fires burning, and then they stand on the battlements every day, and they pine and they wait for their boy to come home from his quest. So back to the different possible ways that you can use your supporting cast members. If you decide that you do not want inside of your quest a loyal sidekick, instead you can opt for the band of brothers option. And this is a common pattern you see in an awful lot of quest stories and particularly in an awful lot of ensemble cast Quest story movies because the band of brothers options allows you to well pull together a whole lot of Hollywood celebrities or actors and and give them all a role inside of an ensemble cast so you you can set off in a quest and every one of the actors gets at least their own fifteen minutes in the sun to shine inside of the story but in a traditional band of brothers quest story there is always still a lead the central character who is the person who is on quest and the role of the band of brothers is to use their various skills, attributes, and skill sets to support the hero on his quest. Now, the best example of this that comes to mind is actually a 20th century example, and so we're actually going to use an example of a heroine here, and the best example of this is the heroine Dorothy. Now, if you remember Dorothy's quest, Dorothy is starting out at point A, Oz, and her quest is attempt to make it back to point B, Kansas because Dorothy, like Odysseus, agrees that there really is no place like home. Now, Dorothy, on her quest, is accompanied by a band of three traveling companions, and the traveling companions inside of this story are pretty on-the-nose support for Dorothy. You have wisdom, or intelligence, or brains, represented by a scarecrow. You have courage, represented by a cowardly lion, and you have a heart or love or fortitude represented by a tin man and those three band of brothers help dorothy complete her quest and of course since we're talking about the band of brothers model to help a hero complete his quest i i would be remiss to not direct your attention to western literature and culture's most defining well-known and archetypical quest story It, it involves a guy named jesus and he's supported of course by his band of 12 disciples and ladies and gentlemen If, like me, you grew up reading the story one particular way inside of that tradition, then just for fun, go back and take a look at the story of the life of Jesus from miraculous birth and origins through to the call and then through all of the things that I'm going to talk us out about quest ingredients to follow right through death and eventual resurrection. And I think you'll see that the Jesus story is actually the quintessential and consummate quest story inside of the Western literary tradition. But the Odyssey uses neither the loyal sidekick model nor the band of brothers model. Instead, the Odyssey uses the cast of 600 crew members model, and I want to talk a little bit about what the Odyssey is doing here. What are the role of those 600 crew members inside of Odysseus's quest? Why are they there? Why does Homer bother to include 600 of them? And the answer here, I think, is that the Odyssey falls into the most common pattern of utilization of supporting cast members the crew member of homer's odyssey ladies and gentlemen are in the story for only one purpose they are there to die horrible nasty violent terrifying deaths they are to put it into modern terms expendable cast members or red shirts now a little bit of fun if you're not familiar with the term red shirts it's become a very common and contemporary term Inside of well, literary and particularly inside of movie and film analysis, but here's what a red shirt is. So way back in 1966, the original Star Trek series opened and and showed up in television for three short years. And inside of that Star Trek series, viewers of that series very very quickly noticed the most fascinating thing happening in in an awful lot of the episodes. It, it turned out that in an awful lot of episodes, when the lead characters of Star Trek, and that would be let's see, Kirk, Spock, McCoy. Beamed down to a planet or to some strange location in the first few moments of the episode's opening, they were often accompanied by a cast of security personnel, with their phasers, of course, always on stun, and those security personnel, it turned out, in all of the episodes were dressed in red shirts. And what viewers of the show realized very, very quickly is that when an episode of Star Trek opened with the lead characters accompanied by these red-shirted security personnel landed on a planet at the start of an episode, those red-shirted personnel were usually dead, destroyed by some monster or some temptation before the episode's very first commercial break. In fact, people started to research this and geek out on this in an awful lot of detail, and it turns out, ladies and gentlemen, that... Of all the people killed in the original Star Trek series, a full 73% of them were anonymous cast members, expendable crew members, dressed in red shirts. And ladies and gentlemen, Homer's 600 cast members, the crew that leave from Ithaca with them, these Ithacan countrymen of Odysseus, they are definitionally red shirts. Their purpose in the story is essentially the same as the purpose of the crew members inside of the old Star Trek series. Their purpose is to die in violent, dramatic ways, which then allows the hero, or in the case of the Star Trek series, the heroes to shine. And the reason why this particular model of expendable cast members is so useful inside of a quest story is that the quest story really is about the hero, and we need to demonstrate that the hero is more brilliant, more cunning, more capable, more heroic than any other man. And the best way to do that is to demonstrate that mere mortal men succumbed to all sorts of monsters and temptations which the hero heroically manages to overcome so let's quickly take a look at a couple of episodes inside of the odyssey the first place where we meet a temptation in the odyssey is in the land of the lotus eaters and what happens there of course is that a series of odysseus's battle-hardened veteran soldiers fall victim to the lotus plant they eat the plant and then they go stark raving insane they forget all about their homecomings altogether And then Odysseus strides onto the scene, recognizes that the lotus is dangerous, refuses the temptation, and better yet, then drags the men who have been damaged by the temptation, kicking and screaming, back to the boat. And so, in the other men's failure to resist temptation, Odysseus is elevated because he could resist the temptation. Now, Homer, as a storyteller, putting together his quest story, then really ratchets up the role of the red shirts when we get to the island of the Cyclops. And, and here, ladies and gentlemen, I think that Homer has done something really, really brilliant. Because what he does is he takes 12 bravest men into the cave, and he makes a point of telling us that the men entering the cave aren't sissies or wusses. They are the 12 bravest of Odysseus's fleet. And then immediately, six of those 12 brave men are consumed in nasty, violent, horrifying ways by a cyclops. And aside from giving the audience, well, sheer entertainment and special effects value of the Cyclops eating those men alive, the real purpose of those men dying is to demonstrate that the Cyclops poses a real and genuine threat. But then Homer very consciously leaves six of those twelve bravest men alive in the cave. Because by leaving the men alive, well, Odysseus, the hero has a chance to demonstrate that he is brilliant, clever, creative, and canny. Because Odysseus alone was capable of coming up with a plan of rescuing those six men. And that, of course, brings us to the monsters and the temptations, which are the two critical and most common and well-loved ingredients inside of any quest story recipe. So let's talk about those monsters. Well, the monsters inside, of course, Homer's Odyssey are really, really easy to understand because they are, well, monsters. I mean, you've got yourself a cyclops. That's a classic monster, big, huge, ugly thing with a big eye in his head. And and then a couple of islands later, you've got yourself the Dragonians, which are essentially monsters too, with two eyes on the top of their head. So there's nothing subtle about the monsters inside of the Odyssey. The only thing that I'd like to point out about those monsters is that one thing that defines the monsters inside of Homer as opposed to monsters inside of other quest story works, is that all of Homer's monsters can be identified by two particular methods. And one of them, of course, is that, that they're going to be ugly, they're going to be nasty, and they're going to kill human beings and redshirt expendable cast members in all kinds of creative and fun ways. But the other thing that Homer always does with his monsters is his monsters always are gross violators of the rules of xenia. In other words, inside of the Odyssey, if Odysseus lands on an island and he is treated to very, very bad or, or terrible or horrifying Xenia, you know that you've got yourself a monster. The two go hands in hand. And the only reason I point this out, of course, is that, well, it's almost a rule inside of the Odyssey that if you are a violator of Xenia, you are by definition a monster, and all monsters by definition must be destroyed by the hero, and just keep that little thought percolating in the back of your mind because about seven episodes from now it might be a useful little thought to resurrect as we get on with some of the final stages of this quest. Now let's move on to the temptations because everybody prefers a temptation to a monster if they're given a choice on a sunny afternoon. What the quest story archetypical temptation does is it messes not with the hero's body but it messes instead with the hero's mind. The monsters attempt to kill the hero. The temptations whisper in the hero's ear and suggest to the hero that, well, maybe you don't really want to complete your quest anyway. It's pretty comfortable here. I offer some things even more interesting than point B, and, you know, you might want to stick around and enjoy them. And, of course, ladies and gentlemen, I'm putting on the female voice at this point because the archetypical temptation Inside of most quest stories up until the 20th century has been the Temptress, the Femme Fatale, the Siren. And, well, we are going to certainly meet that archetype actually very, very quickly in upcoming episodes of the podcast. So stay tuned because, well, the Temptations, I think, are even more fun than the monsters. Now, one quick final comment on the monsters and the Temptations inside of the quest story archetype recipe. The quest story, folks, is really highly malleable clay, or a really, really flexible recipe might be. Let's stick with our analogy. And if you choose with the quest story recipe, you can create a quest story which is appropriate for Saturday morning children's television. But you can also go in other directions with the quest story. There's an awful lot of contemporary quest stories which essentially take the hero, or now we can take the hero wine onto, if you will, a inner quest or a psychological quest or a quest of the soul. And in that case, point A and point B aren't necessarily geographic locations. They're states of mind or they're some inner demons or inner monsters or inner temptations that have to be overcome towards the hero actually getting to their final destination point. So you can actually create, well, a very simple, entertaining, fun Saturday morning comic book kind of quest with the quest story archetype, or you can create some very serious profound and insightful works of world literature. It's just that useful a model but in all cases you're going to find monsters and temptations at the core of that model. Now on to the next standard ingredient inside of a quest. At some stage in every quest the hero needs to take a special journey and that journey is going to take them ladies and gentlemen to the underworld to the land of the dead. The hero well in essence has to die and be reborn before the quest can continue. Now, how the hero dies and is reborn really depends on your hero and upon your particular quest, but the basic concept is that the hero has to do something that mere mortal human beings can't do, which is visit the land of the dead and somehow return or resurrect from that land of the dead. And the hero, in all of the quest stories, once they've had this transformative experience, well, they always come back somewhat changed and usually armed with some sort of secret information or skills, which will allow them to then carry on and fulfill their quest. And then, of course, in every quest story, you have that other ingredient. The moment of deepest, darkest despair. Uh, The moment when things go so badly, terribly, horribly wrong in the hero's quest that the hero really gives up on the quest altogether and says, I'm never, ever going to make it home. And and it looks as though the quest might just get bogged down in the hero's incredibly overwhelming despondency or inability to continue. Now, when you get to that stage and you're watching a movie with a heroic quest, or you're, well, reading a book with a heroic quest, or you're engaged in podcast episodes on Odysseus, even though the hero might despair, there is no reason, ladies and gentlemen, for you and I to, because we know the next ingredient in the plot. Just when the hero is at his moment of deepest, darkest, most profound despair, supernatural help arrives. Now, the form of supernatural help that arrives really depends on the quest story that you're telling. Inside of this quest story, it's going to be an Olympian god or goddess who is going to come along and buck Odysseus up and help him get on with his quest. And in other stories, of course, you have other forms of divine or supernatural or magical deity-type things showing up to help the hero along. So it could be, well, the ghost of Dumbledore, there in Harry Potter's moment of deepest and darkest despair. It, it might be a shade from Obi-Wan Kenobi, there to help out Luke Skywalker just when he's really, really given up on everything. Or it might be a shade or a ghost or the spirit of Gandalf the White, there to buck up Frodo Baggins as he's making his way towards Mount Doom. And, well, with a little bit more cheerful, happy example, it might be Glinda the good witch of the north come down to help dorothy find her way back to kansas from the land of oz but some supernatural aid will arrive on the scene and the hero will carry on with his quest and then finally of course the hero will arrive at point b the ultimate goal and just as we and the hero are beginning to exhale and go yes it all ended well of course there has to be that inevitable final moment the final ordeal And ladies and gentlemen, the final ordeal is one of those elements inside of every self-respecting quest story recipe. And the final ordeal, of course, is something unexpected, something that the hero wasn't ready for, some little twist in the end, and of course it's going to present the hero with their greatest, most difficult, and death-defying challenge yet. And folks, then, that pretty well sums up how to bake a quest story recipe number 101. So here's what you need. You need to have mythic or divine origins. You need to have a call. You need to have some form of supporting cast members. You need to have monsters. You need to have temptations. You have to have an obligatory journey to the land of the dead. You need that moment of deepest, darkest despair. And then you need supernatural aid. And finally, when you arrive at point B, because in every quest, you do arrive at the destination, your hero is going to have to overcome some final, terrifying ordeal before the quest is complete. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's an awful lot of information to assimilate. That's an awful lot of inner workings of how quest stories are made. And that's a great place to leave today. So have yourselves a wonderful day. Do your best to overcome your monsters. Do your best to resist your temptations and keep your eyes firmly focused on your ultimate quests. And I will talk to you again very soon. Bye for now. Sunday morning, 7 a.m. You are sleeping peacefully when suddenly you are jolted awake by a phone call. You answer, it is the boss. Sorry about the call on your day off, hero, but I need you in the office right away. We have a crisis. Be here in an hour, or it will be too late you answer. Don't worry, boss. I'm on my way. I will be there in thirty minutes. You leap from the bed. You shower. You arm yourself, a tastefully chosen business suit. You fortify your body for battle with coffee. Then you hop into your minivan, a Honda Odyssey, and off you go, speeding down the wine-dark freeway towards the office on what should be an incident-free 15-minute drive. And then the wheels fall off. The freeway, well, it should be empty and wide open on a Sunday morning, but strangely today, unaccountably today, the freeway is clogged with cursed traffic. Well, you do your best, navigating perilously between the lanes. But some of the drivers on the road this morning are complete monsters. There's a Yahoo and a Hummer up ahead, blindly weaving between the lanes. And then there are all those hitchhikers standing there on the freeway's soft shoulders, smiling, oh, so nicely. But eventually you manage to evade the Hummer and, after some quality time in a truck-stop bathroom stall, you finally say a fond farewell to that wonderful hitchhiker. And then you are back on the freeway. The boss's clock, after all, is still ticking. But what is this? Ahead on the horizon? The freeway, it's closed. An accident. You can see the flames of something burning, and are those sirens you hear? No choice, Hero, but to take the detour. Which should be easy enough, but for the sudden change in weather. A thick bank of fog and rain moves in, and well, soon you are totally lost. But you keep driving. The boss needs you. When the fog finally lifts... You realize to your horror that you've somehow left the road completely and are now in one of those underground parking garages. And no matter how hard you try, you just can't find your way out. Around and around you go in labyrinthine circles, searching for an exit. The garage begins to creep you out. Everywhere, all you see are the rusting frames of abandoned late model cars. It looks like they never found their way out of that garage. You despair. Pull into a parking spot. Kill the engine and break down in tears. You cry into the empty dark. I will never get out of this garage. But then, what is this? A voice? But coming from where? And then you realize, it's my car's GPS, guiding me, as if from on high, from, from some cloud server somewhere. And the instructions well, they're certain, confident, reassuring, clear. Proceed forward, remain in the left lane, then take the first turn. Your destination is ahead. And within moments, your office tower is within sight. You roll down your car's window and breathe in the familiar downtown city air. You are so close to your office that you can see some of your colleagues and Smell the familiar Starbucks lattes as they clutch them in their soft, urban hands. You park your car and rush, sprinting to the office tower entrance, almost daring to celebrate. You know you are very late, but you come with information. You can solve your boss's crisis. But what fresh hell is this? A a picket line? Barring entrance to the office? A host of striking employees, each armed with a cuttingly worded picket sign. You count. There must be nearly 108 of them. And each, you know, will force you to read a pamphlet or sign a petition. And even then, they might not let you pass. Again, you despair. If only I had the help of my car's GPS now. But then you remember. My cell phone. My cell phone has a navigation app. And once more, that certain, confident, reassuring voice, as if from the clouds, speaks. Calculating new route, alternate access to destination via rear service elevator. Proceed on foot for one minute. And then you are crossing the threshold into your office. And there still waiting for you, after all these long hours, is your boss. But what final, cruel twist is this? Who is that other employee, sitting at your desk, sitting on your chair? Have you arrived too late? Has your boss already fired your ass and replaced you with... with the intern? Your navigation app speaks soft, reassuring words. You have arrived at your destination. But have you arrived on time?